another enlightening episode of our podcast, Forbidding Conversations from the University of Austin, Texas. As always, I'm your host, Harry Weatherall, and I'm here to navigate intricate maze of life's experiences to examine, dissect, savor the essence, and then to spit out the kernels at the very end. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, a woman who stands at the intersection of policy, technology, and national security, a woman who dares to envision a world where the challenges of today become the opportunities of tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Cassandra Shand. But first, can I introduce to you a new business opportunity, which is Dynalay. Do you love discovering delicious food while still bearing the brunt of Biden's out of control inflation? Well, now you can. If you are in the Centennial State, I recommend you hitting up www.dynalay.com and you will be able to save 50% off at dining at off-peak hours. We've already had some tremendous impact on it. I use it. The team here at the UATX podcast use it as well, and I can really guarantee it. If you've got any questions, be sure to ask me. Now, before we go any further, we should embark on this intellectual joy voyage, and I welcome to the show Cassandra Sand, soon potentially to be Dr. Shen. Welcome to the UATX podcast. My guest today is the wonderful and enigmatic Cassandra Sand, who is joining us from UATX home ground, Austin, Texas. Cassandra, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Harry. Happy to be here. I'm very glad to have you on the board. Um, I'm sure you've heard many of our episodes before. I normally like to kick things off by, uh, you know, get a better understanding of all the people in our program. I've had some really interesting guests on so far, but maybe kick us off from the start. You know, tell us about where you grew up, what was it like, and maybe how you think your upbringing was very similar to a typical American upbringing, and how it was different. Um, I'd say my family, my upbringing is not at all typical to that of a typical American. Um, so I grew up in San Diego, but very, very south San Diego. We have a lot of San Diegans here at UATX. Um, I grew up in Chula Vista. Yeah, about five miles from the U.S.-Mexico border. Yeah. Elementary, middle, high school, I was more or less the only white kid growing up. So that was kind of like my community. Grew up sailing. That's kind of all my parents were really interested in. Yeah. Not academic, not school, just like sailing. Um, so it was kind of like this weird like you sail on the weekend with a bunch of white kids. But like during the school week, like you are the only blonde. You were like the only white kid. Um, I had a 15th birthday party and they called it the Quisinuera which I thought was really funny, um, but stuff like that. Well, I was called the Blonde Tree. Like, that was my nickname through high school. <laughs> Everyone would look up, look up at me, but that's kind of like, that was kind of like, that was kind of the vibe. And then I went to UCLA for undergrad, and that's when I was just like, oh, like, things are, it was kind of like shocking to me in a weird way. It was like, oh, um, <laughs> I don't know. It was like, every, like, the joke is like, UCLA is like, you see a lot of Asians, but uh, <laughs> me, it was like, you see a lot of white people. It was kind of like, it was a complete flip-flop for me. Fantastic. So, and when you said you were the only, what, mostly Hispanic culture uh, in San Diego? Yeah, heavily Hispanic. Um, it's also one of the largest, like, Filipino diaspora communities. I learned to speak Tagalog, spent, like, eight years on that. Um, a lot of time speaking Tagalog. Um, I mean, pretty much every race is more represented than white people in, like, the schools yeah. that I have attended. So, um, very, like, interesting, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> I, I also kind of grew up with the Trayvon Martin stuff. Um, right when that was kicking off, that was in the beginning of high school for me, or maybe end of middle mm -hmm. school. Um, very like it, the culture completely shifted on kind of like on my high school campus. Um, definitely negative towards me. So it was it was very different in a lot of respects. I think 
it is not at all your, your typical suburban uh, white family upbringing by any means. So right. that's so interesting. But then also corresponding with like the sailing side of things as well, which is. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, it's also like, I mean, like we were a scholarship family through and through. So um, just had, like had to do as best you can. And honestly, like you get to a point with sports. And I know that you do, what's it like wave. Uh, what's you do something very similar. National champion. Remind me, Harry. I used, to, I, used to, I used to do a lot of rowing. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but you know, it gets to a point, right, where you have to choose, do I want to be a professional sailor uh, or not? Like, that's one consider- consideration yeah. you have to make sailing. And then at the same time, it's like uh, there are people that are just naturally gifted sailors and there are people that just have to work very, 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 very hard to be good. And if you want to be really good at school or business or politics, at the time I was very into politics, um, you have to kind of make a choice. So my younger two siblings are Olympic level, brilliant, amazing. Um, my brother doesn't want to sail, but uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think I might have told you, um, oh, for Christmas a few years ago, my wife and I gave ourselves a learn to sail course at the Royal New Zealand Yacht Squadron, which I just thought was going to be like a shared. Um, but it turned <laughs> out, Current America's cup holder, it's like the Real Madrid of global sailing and like I was almost terrified to get too involved in it because my understanding about sailing it's kind of almost like up there with like fly fishing that people get obsessed with it like (laughs) you know and with cycling as well but like I'm sure you saw that these people people like all I think about is sailing and my dream in life is to like go here and sail and there's just, I mean, what I, having just had only a very brief experience sailing, what I kind of liked about it the most was that it had, it was a sport which could be done competitively and for leisure, Um, but also that there was a somewhat, um, you could enjoy it with low levels of skill, I think was a, positive compared to tennis for example tennis for the first 50 hours kind of sucks um Um, i don't know i i think that for just like leisurely sailing absolutely but anything competitive you are going to be lapped and it kind of sucks like at a certain level of racing it's like what like your foot slips a half inch and your the the kinetic energy of your boat doesn't kind of you quite how you want it you're you've lost like that's kind of like a lot of the regatta level vibes also, to your uh, point before about how people take it very seriously, I have a really good friend. Um, he's a quantum physicist at Caltech, and he was complaining to me all of his girl troubles, like how he went from Cambridge to Caltech, and like he doesn't know what to do. And then you talk to him, and you realize like his priorities in life are sailing, math, and girls. Like that's that is like not an uncommon story you hear about from a lot of sailors. It's, it's really quite yeah. funny. Also, it's like it's incredibly male dominated. I think. Um, I'm a big proponent of the sport for like basically anyone. There's there's very few sports where it's like you're seven years old, you're basically on a bathtub by yourself in the middle of the ocean, yeah. and you're expected to be completely confident on your own. Um, I think that is it, it's, it definitely teaches you a lot of skills early on yeah. that I think um, are I don't know quite good. And also uh, at the racing level, I, I'd say it's it is definitely the bare minimum chess in the water. I think you make an argument that it might be go on the water as well. Um, it's very tactical. So um, I think it's, I don't know. I'm, I'm a big proponent of sailing, but um, yeah. 
I think that the, that that tactical element of it as well was this idea that what yeah that 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 you could that it wasn't just being like the strongest person in the boat gives you you know that your genetics like the Olympics were decided tw- tw- twenty years ago at conception in the same way the hundred meter sprint is um, it's a sport for life and the other thing I kind of really enjoyed about it was this like this timeless quality to it. And even though some of these boats are like super sophisticated, you know, Jason and the Argonauts would still be able to get into your, like a modern clipper and move it around. That's true. Yeah. You know, I was, yeah. In a regatta two weeks ago, and the boats were from like the 40s, there were all these uh, hardwood, beautiful, beautiful boats yeah. and like a fleet of like 60, 60 boats racing with a, it's just, it's kind of surreal. Um, and I know exactly what you're des- <laughs> describing with the, the Royal uh, Yacht Club in New Zealand. Mm. Uh, the the UK scene absolutely blew my mind. They have like this, uh, I had this regatta in Cows last summer. Um, it's this ma- if you've never done it or if you're even remotely interested, I would highly recommend it. It's like genuinely one of the coolest things to do. Um, but it's just like basically a week long of racing, thousands of sailors like, in one place, which you don't really see very often in the US. Mm. And um, the Royal London Yacht Club, um, they have a separate entrance for women, which I was just like, what the heck? It's like, you're just like, I, I race against you, like, what? Um, things like that, you just, there's, they truly irk you so much. But um, yeah, it's just kind of very strange to be in a sport that's very, uh, yeah. But my parents were like, uh, whatever it's worth, like, no vacations on our, like, or if we script and save, whatever, but, like, it was yeah. sailing, and that is, like, that is the path to success, so. Terrific. Yeah. My, I'd be remiss not to tell my favorite sta- sailing anecdote. Um, one of my good friends, he, his, one of his friends, so friend of friend, um, had, he, they had some friends who were representing, like, the under-19 Australian uh, sailing team, and they were on, like, the circuit through Europe, which... Like sailing is a glamorous sport and it, you know, you go down to the PBR and it's, you know, Bud Light sponsoring it and like Wrangler jeans. If you go down to these sailing regattas in the Mediterranean, you know, Louis Vuitton's there out, you know, so they were sponsored by Audi. Um, and at the end of their event, they were in like Cannes or something. Um, like if any like wealthy people love getting a lit up is one of the, uh, they just do it with a bit more class um and managed to get away with a little bit more and so they're getting absolutely um slammed uh you know on the moat and stuff and these danish guys are like hey we're going into town do you want to uh do you want to come and they're like oh yeah it's like we don't have a car it's like don't worry we've got like our audi aq sponsored uh we can just all jump in there so they get in there you know triple vision the whole lot go you know and start driving into town and they're, you know, I don't know, about 10 miles out. Anyway, one thing that the French love beyond, you know, rioting and, you know, being hypochondriacs is roundabouts. They're huge on them. Anyway, they rock up to this roundabout and they're talking to these Danish guys and they're like, get this in, uh, in Australia. We drive on the other side of the road. And instead of going like clockwise, we go counterclockwise. And they're like, oh, no way. Why don't we do that now? So they hit, put their car into reverse and start doing this hot lap around the roundabout in reverse and hit this other car and they spin out. And all of a sudden, they hear the police sirens and they start absolutely freaking out because 
in the sponsor's car, five times over the limit. Um, this is like their, set, their dreams of like representing Australia. All look like they're going to be dashed in about five minutes. Anyway, this policeman knocks on the door and in his broken English, it's just like, is everything... Well, no, he, he's go. the policeman turns up, speaks to the other car, and they see all this like shouting in French. They don't speak French, so they're like, oh, this does not sound good. So the policeman comes over to them, knocks on their window, and he says, is everything okay? And the guy's like, yeah, sorry, uh, we appear to have had a collision. And they're like, don't worry. I just spoke to the guy in the other car, and he's so drunk he reckoned you guys were driving backwards around the roundabout. And they're like, oh, well, no, we weren't, sir. And it's like, well, I didn't think you were. So that's all right. I've taken his license. Where do you guys need to go? I'll give you the escort. And he's like, oh, we're just going into town. And he just, like, followed him in, like, complete silence and managed to escape what otherwise would have been an absolute disastrous situation. So that's my only sort of sailing anecdote. Um, I like how it does not have anything to do with sailing, but uh, yeah. sailing either. It's like no, um, awesome. you just kind of lucky friends. Why don't we, we can sail into the next part? You decide to go to UCLA. I find the whole concept of Americans choosing their colleges like super interesting. Um, there's so much more choice, I think, than the average person has in other countries. Yeah, um, I mean, why are you yeah. UCLA? I was quite strategic about it. Um, my family wasn't going to pay for college. Uh, I was f- future me was going to pay for college, yep. and I uh, did the. I figured out that I had probably like my like. So UCLA was is like I, I got into schools on the East Coast, uh, but UCLA was uh, one of the few schools that kind of had like a more lenient. Um, they they I think they would accept like one class I had done, and I was like, okay, what like mm. <laughs> in hindsight is really kind of dumb, but I was like seventeen or eighteen when I was was thinking about this i was like okay like that might be a couple grand like that's more than i'm getting from whatever school so then i i I don't know uh quite and that's definitely the only thing that made me choose ucla um i also kind of had um i had another for another another story for another time but um one of the reasons that i kind of uh, chose ucla was because of that graduating early component and then um it's one of those weird things you just keep pushing the limit you can push it further and further and further and further um so yeah was pretty cool. Um, I think it's uh, something I'm like one of the more proud, my more prouder moments, I suppose. Future you is happy with past Cassandra's choices? Two years, two degrees. Like, yeah, that was a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, ha- I mean, cause that, I mean, that is surprising, you know, being able to squeeze four years into two, two, that's either an indictment on the amount of content that uh, these schools are providing or a, Commendation on how efficiently. Uh, I think perhaps a bit of both. I mean, um, that's kind of where I first got obsessed with strategy stuff um, and kind of yeah. like efficiency. Um, but it also, like, I do not want to give give the impression at all that I was a complete nerd and I was doing nothing but studying. It was kind of not the a- opposite. Like, a, <laughs> uh, figured out that UCLA had an insane conference fund, and so every single weekend I was in a different state on. UCLA or some other sponsor's dime. I was sailing for UCLA. I was in Hawaii a lot for that kind of stuff. Um, truly had an absolute blast. Like frat parties, football games. Um, but um, yeah, no, it, it was uh, it was fun. I, I just you know, pushing the boundary a little bit. I'm guessing the impression you knew what you wanted to do before you turned up. Um, kind of like I had this kind of bright eye bushy tail 
vision of running for Congress at 25 and blah, 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 like yeah. a very like clear political path. Oh, another reason I chose UCLA was because I was super involved in SoCal politics and I wanted to stay involved and I figured that was worthwhile. And so like it, it was like partly strategic and staying close to home. Yeah, because uh, yeah, there genuinely was a vacuum. There was nobody under like 35 engaged yeah. in the scene at all. Um, and I had been doing pol- political stuff since I was in yeah. like 15. So it kind of was like, okay. Uh, very natural, but yeah, no, I, I, we've, I think we've joked about in the past how, like, in Australia, the young liberals um, is anyone under the age of forty. You know, it's like as long as you didn't vote for Nixon, you can come and join the party. Yeah, um, I, I mean, because like, I mean, let's sort of dig into that. You know, most people, most people who want to go into politics are either like they're part of the dynasty, which is a small number of people they're very concerned about the issues or they're very attracted to sort of like the lifestyle. I mean, which one of those? I mean, definitely issues. Issues. Um, That makes, yeah. I mean, I, um, I mean, I'm sure you've had plenty of other people on here and all the fellows have like some, like we're all kind of nerds, right? Uh, My nerdy thing in elementary school was political autobiographies. I read like as many as really possible. I was really interested in kind of like how political figures came to where they came to like kind of, um, their own political ideologies, their own political strategy, kind of how their life ended up framing around politics. I found it all very interesting. And to be quite frank, at the time, I thought politics was the biggest challenge. It wasn't until maybe I was like 19 that I realized actually politics is not the biggest challenge. It's more like the startup space. That is one of the most challenging spaces to be in. That is kind of why I've pivoted so strongly towards startups. But at the time, I really thought that politics was just really difficult, especially in California, right? Because you're not right-leaning in California. If, if you're right-leaning in California, um, you have a, <laughs> a lot of fires put out. Um, I enjoy being the minority. I've been in the minority for most of my life, yeah. um, even though, like, you wouldn't think so. But um, I kind of thrive being one of the few. And so it was kind of, like, natural as well. Um, but UCLA really kind of put me off. I, I did not engage much in college politics that wasn't really my vibe i preferred preferred more of like the big think tank circuit scene in dc so that's kind of where i thrived um and yeah la is a different beast like la is kind of where you go for political fundraising you don't go for actual anything like like any sub- substantive change san diego is uh fairly purple um yeah. but since then i think it's like politics has changed quite drastically since 2018 when i started college so uh, I would agree. Um, what issues are, are most important to you, and which ones are you, ones that you don't have a dog in the fight of? Um, I think. Well, I think we we've discussed a few times like the tall poppy syndrome stuff. I think that the right tends to be less tall poppy. That's changing more and more now, um, but that's something I deeply care about. I want a society where you reward hard work. Like yeah. that is like fundamentally what I believe in. Um, I think that like the harder like you, you just like. I just think, yeah, hard work should be rewarded. And I think that oftentimes you see right-leaning policies align more favor- favorably on that side. I'm also, my foreign policy currently aligns with what the right feels and the right acts on. Um, that I love foreign policy. That's kind of my bread and butter. Um, I A lot of domestic politi- political issues, I just, uh, <laughs> they just kind of seem like a big dark abyss and you can never crawl out of them. So I try to kind of avoid wherever I could. Yeah. Um, but yeah. 
Um, I've got some good questions about for foreign policy a bit later, but I I will definitely be interested in the digging a little bit into that idea of oh, that would it be. I think most people, regardless of their political persuasion, like the idea that people should be rewarded in society based on hard work. But I get a a thing I hear again and again and again, particularly online, is a sense that that has that compact contract has sort of been broken and a lot of people feel that it's either they feel like the game is rigged in some way and some people think it's like for identity reasons they're like i can't succeed in america because i'm gay or they'll say i can't succeed in america because there is a technocratic group of people working behind the scenes pulling the levers um well, apparently white women benefit the most from affirmative action oh really I saw somebody recently. I'm like, oh, let me tell you guys. Uh, but yeah, no, I know what you're kind of getting at. Um, um, I know. I think my my political views have devolved quite drastically. I like Hamlin's razor. Don't attribute malice to what could just just as equally be stupidity. I firmly believe that. I think that you, that sums up politics. Ninety five percent of politics, and I think like the political game itself is down to the five percent of very highly political informed individuals yeah. um, that end up kind of making the choices and are politically savvy and know who's doing what and how to kind of work within the existing political frameworks to kind of achieve the outcomes they want. And in a sense, it's kind of disheartening to me. I also think that like I mean, you name an issue, right? The left and the right has flip flopped on it, more or less. Like it's, it's yeah. kind of hard to kind of find. Uh, consistency of belief on either side of the spectrum. Um, and yeah, I think <laughs> the business uh, scenes just seems way more exciting at the moment, um, which is kind of unfortunate because I, I truly like, I mean, I lived and breathed politics for like close to 10 years. Um, Political family? No, not at all. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Like my dad is an Aussie. He's not, even, he's not an American. Yeah. Um, my mom, my parents were like slightly politically engaged, like, um, but they definitely got more involved after my, my teachers in elementary school, I was in third grade and I had all these, like, uh, <laughs> at the time I really liked Sarah Palin's glasses because she didn't have frames on the lenses. And I was like, nice. that's super cool. She's on the cover of her autobiography. I'm going to read it. I'm going to bring it to like my elementary school, third grade class where I'm the only white kid. I'm going to read this book really prominently from everybody. Yeah. Did not go over very well with my teachers, um, and yeah. So that's kind of when my my parents, I think, kind of started taking a more active role in, like, oh, what are we raised? Yeah, <laughs> and they were very encouraging. They kind of always wanted me to share my opinions, and I think that is something. Like, my parents are absolutely amazing people. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, three cheers because like there are so many people I see, like young people who are like do things to be transgressive, but their idea of being transgressive is, is wearing like a Che Guevara t-shirt around like Berkeley, <laughs> which is like the least transgressive thing. Like, All the Pussifarian stuff, yeah. Wear a yeah. cap and like throw rocks at people. Like if you want to really be transgressive, like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a very like a, uh, be strategic about the battles you fight. It's um, a good one. I, yeah, there was kind of like a, a TPUSA movement on campus. Um, that's kind of like, I think 2016 was all the, when all the TPUSA kind of stuff start, started happening. and. Uh, yep. That's Charlie Kirk's thing. By the way, Charlie Kirk now sells hot sauce, um, which I think is very funny. But um, Capitalism always runs away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I 
yeah, I, I'm not sure how many people you went over with like the socialism sucks signs. I prefer more kind of like finding a middle ground with people you talk to, um, which is, I just think that like not enough like campus groups and politics focus on that at all. But I am digressing. <laughs> I'm always I'm always amazed, but um, you know, one of my favorite heuristics to use is um, think at the margin, not at the absolute. And it seems to me that the majority of elections are won all over the world are by converting independents who swing their vote rather than rounding up the score with the, like, the true believers. And I'm always amazed how people push. I mean, I guess, I, you know, with the primary process here, it encourages uh, the race to the outside and the race to the inside if you win. Um, but it strikes me as poor. It's it, I would do things differently, perhaps, if I was in power, but of course I'm it, not. I, <laughs> I wouldn't even say it's a primary process. And, like, again, I'm not that disillusioned about politics, yeah. maybe. But um, it's, a, it's the way that parties endorse people going into the primary. That's the corrupt part. And not corrupt, insidious part. Um, essentially, like, you, you like – a central committee, which is an elected body of party members, and this depends on the state, but this is more or less how it works. This yeah. central committee elects, elected by your own party members, so yeah. maybe it's a group of 30 different Republicans or 30 different Democrats, yeah. they vote on who that county or that local party system will endorse, and that means whoever the endorsed candidate is gets all of the the mailers, the like uh, free mailers, oftentimes like uh, radio ads, if I mean, political connections, fundraising dollars, maybe some PAC money. Um, that all kind of comes from the endorsement itself. But that endorsement is typically chosen chosen years in advance. And I think, like, that realization, like, kind of, like, the realization that the game you're playing now probably won't come into play until the next two to three election cycles. That, to me, was when I was just kind of like, ah, like, there has to be a more yeah. exciting kind of, strategy to play literally in any other industry um, uh, you know the one that always the one that the thing that always jumps to my mind is barack obama i'm a fan but like graduates harvard law and then goes off to chicago to become the community organizer which i don't even know is a real job i think only in america can you have that job like um and you think that's a strange path like did he sort of wh why would you do why would you go down that route and the obvious answer is that it was the best chance that he had to become what he eventually became, which was a senator. And then um, there's a lot of different pathways you can take um, that kind of end up meeting the same people that you need to impress. Um, yeah. That maybe those people, they might kind of like you. They may not really like you, but they like the person you are opposing even less. And so they're just yeah. going to go for you. So once you kind of identify that little niche, I think that's when chilling yeah. um, but that's politics i love it uh for policies more my speak early i tried to tend to avoid any um political conversation but i, I mean I, i'm sure you know uh well i guess you're an aussie so any american you see especially abroad it's like oh what do you think the, ne the next election right yeah. uh, no. <laughs> i've got i've got a list of uh, foreign policy uh questions but uh my okay. final one because you're probably the person who i've met who has read the most political biographies who is the most overrated and who is the most underrated political figure? Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, I'm sure. Uh, 
I don't want to say Reagan is the most overrated political figure, but I like I one of my personal angst is like I, I don't really like when there's kind of this whole kind of like cult of personality around presidents. Yeah. Because like when you realize the steps it took to get there, you're just kind of like like there's no something along the way might not have been kind of might have been kind of iffy. Um, I mean, he's great, but I also like do a lot of like homelessness research, a lot of stuff you do with like mental health stuff, and I. Yeah. Uh, you can see the lasting effects there. Um, so I, I wouldn't say I overrated, um, but still awesome. Yeah. Uh, and then most underrated. I really like these like those like cool little nice little heroic stories. I like, like the whole Captain Sully Sullenberger, the guy who landed the plane on the Hudson. I really like his story. Super niche, but yeah, cool. I don't know who my most overrated one is. It'd possibly be, if you're not American, it's possibly Obama. Obama is wildly more popular overseas than he is in America, like wildly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, and kind and especially, um, maybe Jacinda Ardern, like similar vibe, um, especially in her early days, Justin Trudeau, all these like fresh-faced, young, attractive people who, like, get in early. They, they always build a lot of hype. And the thing is, like, if you only saw Obama on TV, he does very good at He's very good at that. My most underrated political figure is F.W. de Klerk. He was the president of South Africa who organized the end of apartheid along with Nelson Mandela. Now, everyone knows Nelson, um, and F.W. de Klerk was obviously a supporter of apartheid, but he also, you know, paved the way for the end of essentially the end of the South African home that he knew in a way which allowed a very peaceful um, and new South Africa, which fulfilled my stepfather's South African. And South Africa hasn't worked out the way that Mandela had initially hoped for. Um, They're in some tough places right now. But, but he definitely um, definitely made a big difference. Um, I'd love to talk about this foreign, um, foreign internet, foreign... Ugh, foreign policy stuff because my understanding is that this is the most attractive area of people who are interested in working in government like i know in australia it's kind of people like i want to work in government and it's like you work in dfat which is what is it department of foreign affairs and trade well like what do they call over here i mean it's the foreign office in the uk uh the whole idea is that there's a line of people out the door who want to get into it uh, and very few more people end up in, um, you know, the fisheries department than the uh, foreign affairs department. Yeah, that would be um, the same here. And, yeah, but you, you're, you're part of it. You, you've, bro- you've broken through, and just you're, you're contributing and putting your ten cents towards uh, helping shape a safer, more prosperous America world through America. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> like going through the gauntlet. Sorry. Or was it like going through the gauntlet of going through some policy? Yeah, well, I mean, it's everyone wants to get into it. Uh, not everyone does. I'm in it. I said that I dabble. Um, you dabble like a hobbyist, essentially. Yeah, like I mean, yeah, I'm doing a project right now with the DoD, um, more like innovation ecosystem type stuff. I'm really interested in kind of how the DoD innovates. I think that uh, having more streamlined and effective innovation on the DoD side means we have a more effective foreign policy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been to some like strange places 
foreign policy adjacent. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities out there if you're if you know the right people and you're looking. Um, uh, I whew. foreign policy itself, though, as like a career field, I, I think it encourages kind of pigeonholing. Like you, you're incentivized to being like the most like the the foremost expert on uh, Ukrainian rare earth minerals. You some sort of subset of that um, where. I just like, I mean, I just truly am not drawn towards the pigeonhole. I, I enjoy kind of being more of a generalist. I think a lot of us in this program do, and that's kind of what makes us unique yeah. and special. Um, and so for that reason, I've kind of steered away from foreign policy. Um, but I found that kind of using the foreign policy kind of, uh, my foreign policy background with kind of like kind of the startup space has been pretty awesome so far. I mean, yeah. um, a lot of crossover you can do with tech, um, especially in the dual use space, which I really enjoyed. So, the, most people have a lot of problems, and foreign policy ranks pretty low. Um, so, maybe as a hobbyist slash expert, maybe you could sort of explain to listeners something that they might not know, but would be allow them to have a more nuanced view of the situation on three of possibly like the premier geopolitical hotspots in the world. And um, I would be remiss not to begin with the big one. Ukraine, Ukraine and Russia. A lot of people, a lot, what's something people can say that will make them sound smarter than the average person and the next cocktail party they are at? I feel like most people don't know what a proxy war is, but uh, using that word might score some points. Um, I think that, I definitely think it could have been prevented, um, which is kind of, I, I think that we should have been way more effective in deterring Germany's Nord Stream 2 encouragement. I think that would have, saved a lot of time and energy. I also think that most people don't know that when we um, give defense dollars to Ukraine, sometimes we are actually like accounting dollars as technology we've developed where you were including the R&D and like development costs into these uh, cost estimates. And so it's technology that's kind of obsolete on our end because we have better technology to um, surpass that. And so that is often included in like defense dollar spending um, or like support spending for Ukraine. So I think that's kind of a that's kind of interesting. Honestly, I Ukraine the the Ukraine conflict is not my area of expertise. I have a lot of Ukrainian friends, and so I always feel kind of like like it's their issue. Yeah. Um, we're I mean I'm I'm happy to engage and be included in, but um, they're just they're just incredibly they've been working in the space for like twenty years, so um, <laughs> it's yeah. like a high learning curve on my part. I'm more comfortable with the uh, yeah. It feels like there's going to be, you know, with these uh, Republican primaries coming up, everyone's going to have to stake out a position. And we've seen it. We've seen a bunch come out. We've gone from a, it'll be fixed in 24 hours, the Trump line. DeSantis is, you know, struggling to sort of work it out. What is the right strategy for the US in the, uh, and what, what feels like it's becoming the end game? Um, it, it's hard for me to kind of, see an end game i think that so i think putin's replacement would likely be worse than putin i think an end game would be putin out of power i think putin's replacement would likely be the head of the wagner group who's definitely more some people say oh what about democracy in in russia um i think that first of all democracies it'll take a long time to accomplish and as far as like outcomes the way we want i think uh in order for, to, I think 
to make democracy work, you often need an adversary to build kind of domestic support around. If you're able to kind of have like a Falklands, um, for example, with the UK Falklands, like that will encourage domestic support that'll keep your democracy strong. And I think that that is likely to happen in Russia if it becomes a democracy. And I think who's the biggest Satan they can think of? It's going to be us. And so I think we're going to be still in a situation where Russia is still hostile towards us. And so I I think in in an endgame situation, um, I'd like to hope there's, I mean, the, the, the war stops and casualties lessen, but I do think like we are probably going to be seen, be, continue to be seen as the bad guys. Um, I think that China has no, um, they kind of have to work with Ukraine, right? Because of the border. I mean, I mean with Russia because of no. the border with Russia, but um, they also don't really like Russia very much. It's kind of one of those neighbors they have to kind of deal with. Um, so I think we, like, I mean, Keeping that into account is important. But as far as like kind of what the right is going to do, I think that I actually think, and this is kind of my hypothesis, I think that we're going to start seeing some shifting on the left and the right around kind of foreign policy. I think that with, if it comes down to Trump and DeSantis, I think that given DeSantis's military background, his military service background, his involvement as a JAG in different areas, including Guantanamo Bay, overseeing some, uh, torture of detainees that kind of stuff might come out um it's public knowledge it's on wikipedia but um and that's kind of like you can kind of see kind of a cannibalization of the right as as far as like what collectively the right views as like strong as the american foreign policy and i think it could shift from what we currently feel now ukraine aside yeah here's my hypothesis on the outcome point out where my blind spots are it's been a big success for the US because they've essentially been able to dismantle one of their largest foreign adversaries at lo- at a low cost. Um, everyone used to be like, oh, the Russian re- the Russian army, like you don't want to mess with these guys. And now it turns out that these guys are completely useless and it's been a complete disaster. Um, but fortunately, not for them, uh, they have a lot of people in Russia that they can keep chucking into the meat grinder. The... When it comes to the end game now, it becomes complex. And what happens is that Putin is... We need an off-ramp to the situation. Like, Ukraine, if Ukraine pushes Russia out of its territories and retakes Crimea, that's such a humiliating blow to Putin that he would rather... Um, do something super drastic rather than allow that scenario to occur, which is the nuclear option. Um, But also Ukraine will not back down now. They've got near in too deep um, and they will not sign a ceasefire, especially if they get a little bit of taste of the victory. And so my thinking on the best strategy would be some, it'd have to probably be these states, potentially maybe Germany, We'd have to say, look, you guys are just going to have to both – Ukraine, you're going to have to give up your territory and sue for peace, essentially. And so it allows you Putin to go home and say, hey, I've been successful. I've overpaid for it, but, like, I said I was going to, you know, liberate the Donbass or something, and I have. Um, and you sort of allow him to walk away with a victory of sorts. Uh, otherwise, the alternative, it just gets – I don't know if Russia will accept – Putin will accept a loss in this space. Yeah, I mean, 
Um, it's really kind of hard to assess Putin's resolve. I also don't know if, if he has any medical conditions. I mean, that's probably, yeah. I know, um, it's kind of spicy there, but, uh, yeah, I one thing I would like to avoid is like an Israel-Palestine issue where you have like essentially it was kind of a super for peace option that has not led to peace. Yep. So, yeah, I just uh, it's one of those uh, foreign affairs spaces that I'm kind of glad I'm not a decision maker in. But um, yep. yeah, China rising power also overrated. Um, I think it has its strengths and its weaknesses. Um, I'm pretty nerdy about the South China Sea stuff, personally. I think it's really cool. Um, I think my fun fact is that, like, the South China Sea is kind of often viewed as a territorial dispute, but I think you can make a, a few clear arguments that uh, having territory in South China Sea allows um, China better satellite launching positions, which is definitely lucrative. And then yeah. secondly, its continental shelf is quite shallow. So for any submarines to launch, um, you stick them in South China Sea super deep down there. We can't really track anything that goes in or out of the strait below, um, which is super scary for us because we don't really know where these Chinese subs are going to pop out. Um, I love discussing that. I think it's really fun. Um, but I think China has some obvious demographic issues. I think that it's kind of economy built on its um, real estate is uh, fragile at best. Um, I do think that she is going to continue strong in power until someone opposes him, but I think that the party system itself is, I mean, uh, it's definitely, I mean, there's just, it's a lot of corruption, but it's also kind of like was expected. I think there's, I, I, I think that if we're able to kind of break the great firewall, that would be a great place to start. As in, like control of the internet. Yeah, I think that uh, that is that just do wonders for kind of like a domestic support for the CCP. Um, People definitely, I'm sure, are really kind of happy. I mean, like not even kind of, but like there's definitely dissidence um, domestic, and I also think that um, I don't know. It's a battle like we fought on multiple fronts. I think that especially. from a U.S. perspective, there's definitely things that we should be doing on our own soil that would better our position with China. Um, yeah. I think that, like, foreign investments, um, should Chinese firms be allowed to purchase land right next to military installations? Probably not. Stuff yeah. like that. Should our allies be silenced over um, condemning Uyghur stuff? Yeah. Well, probably not. I mean, there's, there's just, it's just such a quagmire, but um, yeah, I, I'd say it's like a simultaneously on the rise, but also the decline. The rise also uh, kind of on, on an innovation front, right? Where it's like, I think for um, China kind of got a bad rap for like kind of ripping off American yeah. technologies and just kind of you know, carbon copying. But I think we're now at a, at a point where with certain technologies, they're able to both um, copy, but also improve in ways we haven't yet. I think that's the really scary part. Yeah. it's. Uh, have you been to China? No, I really want to, but I think I'm too late to, yeah. to visit and be safe. I haven't, I haven't been either. Um, but it's 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 a place which I've always gone like up and down whether I'd like to go on it. I mean, one thing I would love to do, like a lot of people say, is like we all know that a lot of people, a lot of Chinese people live in China. 
they're like until you stand in like central Beijing like Beijing Central train station, you don't understand that a lot of people live in China, um, and it's still such a foreign foreign country. Like you've you know you can get on a plane from Austin, rock up in London, grab yourself a Starbucks as soon as you land. You know, like obviously the UK and America have like very similar cultural ties, um, but even if you've gone to continental Europe, you're still feeling like there's a lot that binds you together, but. Yeah, China is a very different place. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's kind of a, it's really bittersweet to me because it's like a, I, I, I'm kind of a believer that you don't really understand what's going on. Like it's, 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 I think it's hard to postulate about politics or foreign policy at all yeah. without having been to the country or discussing. And that's yeah. something I struggle with really deeply because it's, it's. I mean, I don't speak Mandarin, and no. I mean, clearly speaking Mandarin is a huge advantage and also like having been there, having understood the culture um, yeah. into areas where, you know, like not just Beijing or Shanghai, but also to um, smaller villages or different like provinces. I think that is incredibly important. And it's something that just, yeah. I will never get the opportunity to do. And it's kind of frustrating. And I'm not sure if you feel similarly, but uh, also it looks so much fun to hike and like do outdoors yeah. and stuff. <laughs> I mean, I, the one I want, I mean, the place I want to go to Shanghai, I guess, you know, cause it's kind of, um, it just seems like a almost there's just so much going on. It's like the Asian New York, essentially. Um, and I remember as a kid, people would always talk about they're like, oh, you know, I went on holiday, we went to New York. It's the city that never sleeps. It's the only city in the world where it's like open twenty four seven. And my like Chinese friends were like, mate, you have not been to Asia. Like it's that is a place you want to get your like suit tailored at like three a.m. and then like get a bowl of noodles. As long as it's not Chinese New Year, that place is like buzzing the it whole time. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'd like to be. I'd like to. Uh, well, I mean, we we have a lot in common, Cassandra. Like we both have an Australian parent. Um, we're both <laughs> patriots. Uh, but one thing we don't have in common is, I guess, some people say we were part of different generational groups. Um, and I'd want to sort of learn more about it. I mean, what. <laughs> What, what's it like? What's it like being Gen Z? Um, and why? Why do you think depression and mental health issues seem to be such a prominent part, or seem to be growing? Like they're I an think issue in my generation, but it seems to be an epidemic in yours. Answer. Yeah. Like social media, hands down, I think is quite toxic. I also think that we are getting more of that tall poppy esque um, crab mentality stuff in my generation from social media that I don't think previous generations have had. Like, I mean, like, um, I think a common criticism in, in, in elementary school was, oh, why are you a try hard? But that was kind of like the put down, um, which I, I have talked to um, yeah. friends that are older than me and they, they never really had that. Um, but I also, like, part of me just thinks that, like, I think mental health and depression has definitely hit women very hard from social media. Like, especially suicide rates have gone up way high. You can track it around the social media um, advent. But um, honestly, like besides technology, I don't really think technology and also like maybe the mindset that your career can be, you can have multiple careers. You can have multiple side hustles. Like that kind yeah. of mentality I think is kind of new for our generation. But other than that, I think that, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I've always been kind of an older soul. So um yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was surprised not that you were as young as you are, not based on like you looking like haggard, but rather based <laughs> on you uh 
very mature and a lot of similarities. I mean, what most int- I mean, my personal theory on it is what social media has allowed is made fame a attainable goal for many people. Um, because when I was a kid, famous was fame was kind of binary. Like I live in Australia, and there's like famous people, and they live in Hollywood, which is essentially another planet. Like they live in Elysium, and they're like all beautiful, and they all live in this one town, and I like interact with them on a one way direction, and then like read them in like okay magazine um they're not real people this and the idea is you know i don't know anyone who's famous like it's it's just different but the thing which social media provides is that now fame is either you're famous or you're not famous but there's gradations of fame that you might have like a thousand instagram followers and that's not famous that's not like being brad pitt but that's not not being famous either that you're like nano famous yeah, I actually have done a lot of research into this with one of the startups I'm working on, but um, yeah. it's also interesting to see kind of like how influential those individuals actually individuals actually are. I mean, the, like the truth is like you could be, you could have uh, a Twitter or Instagram account with 75 followers and be more influential over your subgroup kind of that you're yeah. speaking to uh, than someone with two million followers. So I, I actually do think that kind of like. Um, views of fame and popularity I think are likely to change pretty soon. Um, but you're absolutely right about like kind of the different gray areas of fame. Um, yeah, I honestly, like I, few things make me more queasy than the kind of the influencer space. <laughs> uh, I mean, queasy is the wrong word, but like, um, I think, uh, you know, like, like traveling for instance, right? Like it's, it's really yeah. kind of, or to find places to visit that aren't just inundated with selfie sticks or tri- tripods are the worst. Yeah. Um, stuff like that. I just think um, I kind or of... boyfriend. Yeah. Sorry? Or the boyfriend. Uh, I think I'm looking yeah. for a tripod. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I always found it very funny when I... I don't have Instagram, so I feel like I live in a different world. I've, I've spoken to Dave about it and how I... When I get my first big paycheck, I'm going to pay someone in India to be my social media manager and just like give me a weekly email update of like how everything's going because I would like to know more about how my friends are going. Um, and I f- often find out through my wife, but I don't want to spend my life like 40% of my life scrolling. Um, or grayscale. Or grayscale, yeah. Yeah, turn your uh, phone gray and white and you won't be addicted. Well, interesting. I'm, I might add that. Cool, great. Like, I'm off. What do you think of OnlyFans? I read yesterday that OnlyFans now makes more revenue than McKinsey, BCG, and Vain do globally combined. That's kind of upsetting. Um, honestly, it's one of those things I don't think about. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, more power to girls that are on OnlyFans and have feet pictures. I mean, there's a whole site for feet pictures now, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I part of me thinks it's slightly better than Pornhub, though. I don't like how I don't like Pornhub's policies, especially with like I mean, they keep a lot of stuff up there that is just blatantly illegal, in my opinion. Um, and I think a, a lot of like um, victim sexual assault, like they have to sue. There's this whole like kind of drawn out cycle, and I think that like OnlyFans is kind of a good replacement. I'm not really sure how much that kind of stuff happens on OnlyFans, but. Um, yeah, that's kind of my thought. I, yeah, I mean, it's wild. 
I mean, I don't know anyone who. It's one of those things I always feel like, man, these people must walk around because I don't know anyone who's on um, OnlyFans as a punter or a provider. Um, <laughs> and it's strange to me that it was such a that it it's really tapped into something. Um, and my personal theory is that they're tapping into uh, a sense of loneliness rather than a sense of gratification. And I think it's also like a substack in a way. It's like, okay. I, like I can get like this person for free on Instagram, but if I pay an extra five bucks a month, I can get this directly to my inbox. And I think that's what the only band does. Interesting. Interesting. I mean, my, yeah, I, I think, cause I remember listening to this, um, this podcast a little while ago about how the most successful all these OnlyFans people, they're not, the thing that makes them successful is, is also their big, their biggest strength is the biggest weakness is that if you're selling digital images, it's infinitely replicable. So if you take pictures of your feet, you can sell them at no cost, infinitely scalable to everyone on the planet who has access to the internet. But the real hustlers, the people who are making like the seven figures, they are constantly hustling and messaging and connecting with all their followers. Yeah. I also think this whole, this, this, this industry itself is about to be absolutely wrecked. Um, yes. I think with virtual reality, mixed reality, like I think people who get early in on like the VR porn scene is they're going to, they're going to be thriving. Um, I'm not currently interested in investing or you know, developing that right. space. But, I mean, you can't blame anybody. I mean, you can, but um, I, it's lucrative for those who try, I think. Um yeah, but I think, I mean, I think on a broader level, I think all of this kind of stuff definitely affects, I mean, obviously affects relationships, yeah. especially among the younger types. I think, like, I think, like, as you are saying, like, you don't really know anyone who engages in this space. I think, um, I, I don't have the stats on this, but I'm inclined to think that 14-year-old boys love this space. They somehow have access to it, and, like, that's influencing how yeah. they, they approach relationships. At the same time, you probably have a large contingent of, like, 50, 60-year-old men 50s um yeah. that are but um also i wouldn't know i don't even know what it looks like so i wouldn't have, i don't know either it's a, it's a, i i have strong not even strong opinions i don't really think about it like you but it would be interesting to sort of how how it is impacting how it impacts you know relationships and how it impacts the future i mean my personal theory on it is that it allows um men it frees men from rejection in terms of relationships with women they find attractive, which is a, for the majority of men, is a very common and very painful experience. And now they don't have to do it for the low, low price of, I don't know. What is it, five bucks? Whatever it I, is. I have no idea. I would love to see kind of like, that brings up a good point. I think it'd be super interesting to kind of see, I think a I think women have difficulty understanding the thought process of guys and vice versa. Um, yep. and I think that's why you have these like really famous TikTok accounts of guys discussing their feelings and blah, blah, blah. I think that kind of stuff is actually kind of interesting and important for yep. I think it's kind of a good way to circumvent, at least uh, not circumvent, but yep. counteract this kind of like nebulous. My only source of gratification is Pornhub or OnlyFans. Yeah. Interesting. Um, you've said that you're moving into the startup space. Do you want to share a little bit about what you're working with? I mean, um, I have a lot of ideas. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So I I'm working on a causal influence and AI technology currently that allows um, allows you to kind of quantify the influence of individual in individual accounts and spreading a narrative across the social media network. And so you can kind of target this narrative and then target kind of this, the subpopulation you want to target and um, sure. uh, develop accordingly. That's kind of um, something that's in the works currently. Um, and yeah, I have, I kind of have a, I'm happy to talk another time about kind of where this kind of fits into everything else. But um, yeah, I'm doing that and uh, my PhD. So um, yeah. Keeping you busy. Slightly, I think, uh, yeah, just enough. I think, uh, yeah. yeah, sorry. Before we dive into the rapid round, um, AI is a thing that um, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine, it's hard to believe how good it is. And in my life, it's hard to think of a technology where you're like, wow, this is, this. you know, it's almost like I feel like the first day that Edison plugs in the light bulb and turns it on, you're like, oh, my God, the fire is now automated. Oh, my God. They're everything, everything is now turned on. Um, and it's not, and I mean, the thing about, you know, electrification of light, um, you know, people think, oh, well, that's convenient. No, it's more than convenient. It brings, it buys you time because you can't do many things in darkness and now that you have lightness for longer periods, your ability to do so much more has just doubled, tripled. You can now run a 24-hour operation or something like that. AI is, provo- is all of a sudden, it's like, oh, no, it's not like, instead of going from like a corded phone to a cordless phone to a mobile, this is something completely new. So there's lots of people that get very excited about it. There's lots of people, we're chatting with Bohan, who also works in this space. Lots of people are very fearful of AI. Where do you come to it now that you're a, uh, playing around on the edges of it. Um, I'm, I'm a tech optimist. I think one thing that yeah. does annoy me is that, uh, not annoy me, but I think one thing that has changed my mindset quite drastically has been the fact that I think to raise for, um, raise in the venture space, you kind of need to have some sort of generative AI component um, to a software, yep. uh, which I think is, I mean, it's not something that was in our kind of minds maybe a year ago. So that's changed uh, pretty, pretty drastically. Um, I mean, I, I mean, for context, like I started a PhD program and then jumped into supervising multiple master's students and all of their theses are on AI. And oh, I'm yeah. just like, where did this come from? Um, I mean, you know where it comes from, but like it just, I think it's like the academic space, it has gone from being kind of a gate nerdy topic to being something you should be discussing Uh, academic space also does not want you to use ai which i think is quite funny um and then i think that um i actually like (laughs) i actually have a really funny story i um uh i was talking to this like fellow at at one of those like dinners in cambridge you know you went to oxford so it was one of the formal halls um it's this older guy he's a fellow and he's he's like his like degree program is like AI policy or something like that. And I, I did the cop out like, so what do you think about chat GPT? Um, and this man legit told me I refuse to get caught up in fads. I was like, oh, like you, you get kind of like these multiple camps of like chat GPT is great too. Like I have never used it, but I study AI, um, which has kind of baffled me. But um, no, I'm the kind of the belief that like, if you're not using it, you're behind. Um, 
I think that if you're a startup and you had an idea that previously did not include AI, you kind of have to pivot and incorporate that uh, as much as people try to tell you. Otherwise, I think that's just like the truth. Um, and I think that there's a lot of room for improvement in the AI space. Yeah. I, um, I don't know, kind of, I mean. What do you mean by improvement? Because like, like what would that look like? Because I've got pro, so I have 3.5 and I have four and four is awesome and 3.5 is pretty good. Like what would five look like? Like how much more could it do that I can't already do? I think it's like where it's pulling information from, what it's being trained on. I mean, like I think, I think a future, uh, an easy future I see is like kind of like, an, like a personal AI chat GBT thing yeah. uh, for each like each of us as individuals that kind of like everything in our life that's going on. It's really hard to keep track, right, of your Instagram or email, things you're reading, X, Y, and Z. Like I like there's it's such an information overload that I think people are beginning to kind of feel that burden, especially as you age. And I I definitely anticipate a future where kind of like the bear like we have our own little things. Um I also think that like I mean we're we're looking at this from a commercial side. I think you look at it from the defense side, I think the AI space is um, I think AI applications are still being considered, which um, I think is quite interesting and quite, mm, I think as a country, um, we kind of, we're still kind of evaluating how we feel about AI. The UK is pretty far ahead of um, kind of assessing what we should do with AI, what we shouldn't do, what is risky, what's not risky. Um, and I think that we have a lot to decide on as a society. Um, and I, I'm not like I, I am not like a. We have yeah, we have a lot of people in our program that are just they can code. They they're just like really AI people. Um, the tech itself, like I, I kind of fall into the camp where it's like I'm kind of hesitant to keep training it until we kind of understand what could happen. Um, but I also like I'm not quite as informed as I should be as far as like the technical, like the technical specifics as to like when, I mean, I've been at AI safety conferences where you have people that are fearful of like the next, the kind of the apocalypse is already here and like an AGI is here. Um, I'm not in that camp, but I'm also kind of like, we do need to be careful. It's like, um, that makes sense that you the bottle. So. What I was saying with um, Bohan about was like when people are, um, when people are, skeptical about these things oh people people are catastrophize uh ai it comes into two spaces one is like the skynet ai becomes super powerful and like mercs assuming we'll live in the matrix or something like that but the other one is ai creates too much creative destruction in too short of a period of time that destabilizes society so for example like um trucking goes from a one of you know employs like 10 million people in the us to employing like two people in the us in a space of five years. Um, and how do you do that? I'm a big, I, I like to flip the story of like people like, oh, how can we train all these coal, um, coal miners to become uh, coders? Mm. My big wonder, wonder is how many, um, how can we train so many lawyers to become plumbers? Yeah, I mean, I also, like that's kind of cool. I just like, and I don't, I don't know, it's, it, I think, as much as I really hate the policy space, I think it's quite slow. Yeah. Um, I think this is like one of the few times, like not a few times, but I mean, I think more than ever we need 
a ton of people discussing very, very niche applications of AI and developing not like we, I think I'm kind of a believer in permissionless innovation as a concept. Like I, I'm very pro innovation and I don't think we should be using policy to stop it. But I do think that we should have kind of like a, if these type outcomes happen, what should we do as a society, as a state, as a local government to counterbalance this? I think there's things that I think we're, we're kind of in an issue, we're at an issue where it's like we have some very smart people who are technologists who are involved in the policy scene, but they are few. Um, for the most part, like, you have just like you just don't have enough people who understand AI discussing AI policy um, and that you have a bunch of people that um, aren't we're never really techie. I mean, just the, de- the demand for solid, smart policy has just skyrocketed yeah. in a way that we haven't seen oh, previously. Um, ready for the rapid round? I don't know what the rapid round is, but yes. I'll just throw you some quick questions. Who's going to win the Republican primary? No answer. All right, so fair enough. Favorite book? Book. <laughs> There's somebody out there. But I, I mean, not a book, but I read The Economist religiously. Fantastic. I've got it on my, got my copy. Um, 9-11 was the big moment for me, for my parent generation. It was where JFK got shot. What was the defining moment for you so far growing up? I mean, COVID. COVID. Is there a memory yeah. where you could remember it, like, it happening? Um, yeah. I mean, also when Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine, I think that was also a defining moment. I remember, like, I was in the kitchen for both of them. Yeah. My one was um, recently was the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yeah, that's another good one. Um, yeah, yeah. That I We didn't touch that, but that, like, oh. Yeah, it's almost feels yeah. good, solid foreign policy. It would could well, okay. We can dive back into that before we jump into the rapid round. Like, what was that the right answer? Leaving Afghanistan? It looked like a debacle on television. I I think that we couldn't stay in Afghanistan. We had to leave yeah. eventually. I think that we made a mistake by not ever. I mean, Biden did an objectively terrible job, though. Like his administration botched that beyond belief. There's yeah. like they're pulling out, and then they're just running. There's yeah. like pulling out and there's not telling our allies in a reasonable time span that we are leaving. That that definitely, I mean, with the UK, we put ourselves in a very precarious position. We made it better with AUKUS, but I mean, like, ugh. Um, I, yeah, it was one of those days where I felt embarrassed to be an American. There's not many of those days. Right. It was, it could have been done better, I think. You know, I always remember my mom telling me, she said, "What you know, watching like the Viet the um, evacuation of Saigon." She's like, "I remember watching it on television, and it, you know, I I have those memories of all these people trying to like jump onto the planes as they as it's taking off." Um, I don't know if you read this. Sorry, but like just remind they had an article maybe like a month ago about like the benefits of or like kind of the silver lining of the withdrawal, um, talking about like all of these things. Like, oh, really? It's like there's less corruption. It's like, yes, there's less corruption. People are getting their hands cut off. Or it's like, oh, there's like less prostitution. It's like, and they had this like, this like, I guess like on par with OnlyFans. They had this, they had this like kind of, they, they were discussing this one woman who was a news reporter and she couldn't make any money for her family. And so now she's a prostitute in the streets, which at first you're just like, that is horrible. And then it gets, it goes deeper into like, 
how do you attract clients in a Taliban-controlled territory? And I just said, this story just stuck with me. She, like, she wears the full burqa, and then she wears these, like, scandalous high heels underneath. And so to attract clients, she flashes a high heel. And that, to me, is just, like, like, oh, the fact that, like, we went from, like, two years ago kind of having women being educated to, like, now news reporters are in burqas flashing, like, scandalous high heels, and air quotes, scandalous. Um, It's just, again, we could do better. A lot better. Ugh. It's um, yeah, that's not good. Um, what is the worst piece of advice you've ever heard? Um, don't be a generalist. I mean, I honestly like. I think most advice is not good advice. <laughs> Sorry, that might be like my uh, but personality in a pigeonhole in a nutshell but um um what criticism or uh have you ever received which you took as a compliment um i mean i i definitely had a lot of criticism about like uh i guess uh, how much i am like oh you're just you're just too much like oh and it's like it's definitely a put down they're not saying it in a nice way but it's one of those things you just kind of have to embrace because at the end of the day it's your personality and you can't really change that um yeah i mean there's i mean there's a fair bit but um yeah what's more difficult being super smart or super beautiful what is the question sorry what is more what would be more difficult being super smart or super beautiful um Super smart. Why is that? Pretty privilege is an absolute thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and I like, I don't know. I, I'm kind of doing this this question as in like, you're smart, but ugly, or you're pretty, but dumb. Um, you can like, I mean, I think you can have a happy life in both. I think, um, I don't know, it's a, t- it a tough choice to make, but I do think that like, um, I'm sure we know our fair bit of like uh, people that have made it just on looks alone, which is, oof. Um, it's, yeah, it, it certainly, it certainly helps a lot of people. I, I, I think it, I honestly think it helps men more than it helps women. I think very beautiful women, uh, when they are, people are like constantly surprised if they're good at anything else. They're like, Oh my God, she's stunning. I, she can read, you know, whereas very attractive men assume to be complex. Competent. Yeah, this like I mean, this is actually something I think about a lot. I think that um, especially in this in like politics or in business, I think that mm. if you're a girl and you get far, there's there's more or less an assumption that you've like kind of slept your way to the top, um, and that kind of stuff. Like I mean, like that vehemently irks me. I just like I ooh, um, and so I don't know. <laughs> I think I suppose at least then right, you can make the argument that it's like at least from like a uh, self-respect point. Um, if you're an ugly female making your way to the top, um, you you like, you kind of like, you know you've done it yourself. Whereas yeah. like, yeah. What is something that all Americans have in common? Oh, I don't I, I think we're happier people than we think we are. 
Um, I think that we think we're deeply. Uh, oh. We also, I, it's one of those things like you don't know how loud is the of, like, of the people you are until you, you travel and you hear other yeah. Americans just like, Ugh. Uh, but then you realize you are that. And so, yeah. Uh, and my final question is, you're a high achiever and being a high achiever means that you often have to do things that you don't want to do on a consistent basis. How do you motivate yourself to do things you don't want to do? Um, to put it blunt, bluntly, I mean, um, if it's something that I don't want to do and it's the upside of doing it is not going to outweigh the cost of doing it, I just won't do it. Um, yeah, but I think that, I mean... There's a lot out there, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, I'm sure you've been stuck doing someone's bitch work, but you do it anyways because you see the upside. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah it's, sometimes. Um, I, I, I'm not a highly conscientious person, and it is a, it is a bit of a curse. Um, do you have any questions for me? Yes. Um, yeah. Do you see yourself being a podcast host? Is this something you enjoy doing? Is this something you just want to end at the 20-something fellows we have here? Or do you want to keep bringing interesting people on? Yeah, I think I'd like to keep doing it. When I was a kid, I I often thought I'd wanted to be a journalist as a kid. And and I think I'd be good at it. It's just such a strange industry to be involved in. It's like... And I think it's changing in a way which I... Because I wouldn't want to work for a, you know, I wouldn't want to work for like the Daily Wire or something like that. Or like a, you know, and I, I think what Ben's doing over there is pretty good. Um, and, but I also, but I wouldn't, but I, I wouldn't, don't want to work at the Huffington Post either. You know, I, I'm someone who's like in the, in the rarity where I still am a big supporter of like legacy media. Um, and I think that they do a lot more right than they do wrong. And I think the harshest, like with all these things, the harshest criticisms are the people who know the least about it. Um, you know, and obviously that's self-selecting, but the people who are, you know, ha- haters of the New York Times um, are not subscribers and possibly only ever read the, uh, the, the, the opinion articles, which are a you know, mixed bag, let's put that. Uh, to, a good example might be, how many times have you read in the comments section on The Economist where people are like, this is bullshit, why don't you stick to economics? I've gotten to the fate point where it's like, I recognize some of their names and they're from my own department. Um, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm going to talk to you next week about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> about that. Um, um, but what I have learned about it is that it's a lot harder than I thought it would be uh, because – when you listen to, because podcasting is so Pareto distributed, like something like a hundred podcast titles occupy 80% of views in America. Like once you get rid out of the Joe Rogan experience and the daily and um, that Barstool sports, you know, there's about 10, which just eat it. Um you're, you know, everyone's sort of fighting for scraps at the bottom. But you listen to them and you think, hey, like this isn't the men's routine, men's rings routine at the Olympic Games. Like, I yeah. That couldn't be that hard. Like Joe's just like some dude and they're just sitting around and he's just like, whoa, man, no way. Do you reckon there's aliens? And what, how he's got like $100 million from the sport? Like 
yeah, that seems like some, like I consider myself like a likable and engaging person. Um, but really now that the more I play around with it, the more I, um, recognize that, you know, true masters of their craft make things look effortless. But that yeah. only comes from music. music kind of stuff. I definitely yeah. you have to have tailored questions. Um, you have to know enough about what your guest is talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I it's- think I'm better at it because what I'm trying to find now is there are some questions I ask and people just like light up. Like when we talked about um, Afghanistan just recently. I can see it in you and I can hear it in your voice. Um, and then I'll be like, what do you think of like OnlyFans? And I'll be like, oh, this is what I think. Yeah, and so OnlyFans question did not hit. I was like, he's not. Nice. land. That's not in the um, description. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's not like I'm like, oh, Cassandra, the OnlyFans girl. Like, she'll definitely want to like, spend two hours chatting about that. Um, it's all about trying to find that balance where I can bring out the best in the conversation. I think it hopefully it could be a skill that I can employ later in life. My wife is a very, very good listener. She should work for like the NSA or something because people tell her stuff all the time. <laughs> I don't know if you're like that or other people in your life, you know, who are like, she'll be like, Oh, did you know that your friends in like therapy for like anxiety? I'm like, oh, what? You know, Tom, who I've been like friends for like 20 years, he's not mentioned it once. You know, it's like, oh, he just, I don't know how she. I'm not a dag for this. Uh, I, I think I would put myself in that bucket as well. Like, I just, it's a, like, yeah, it's amazing. An information extractor or an information. Yeah. I would not call it an information extractor. That sounds. Yeah, it's a bit. But um, yeah. you'd be surprised if you could learn a conversation with the right questions. Um, I, I have friends that uh, that are ambassadors and, and their wives, like, they didn't know until they became ambassadors, but, like, basically their main source of intelligence is their wife. Their wife yeah. can just, like, take all this information from. Yeah. But I just love that. I just think it's so cool. It's like, yeah. Because um, yeah. she does it naturally. My friend, my, my good friend Ted, he just does the direct method. He's just like, you need to tell me right now what's going wrong. And I think that, like, honesty and that sort of, like, I think it probably works more on guys than maybe on women. But, you know, there will all be guys, because a lot of guys take a long time to talk about these things and, like, warm up, especially if they're dealing with some, like, uh, personal issue. Um, And sometimes you just almost need permission to just be like, you need to tell me right now. And you will send your, oh, well, in that case, I think I'm going to do a fair sort of thing. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. like yeah. reading the person early on. I think it's like, it's one of those things like in a networking environment, you kind of tell like. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. It's an, I don't know. I think I, I think could start, like, yeah. There's an element of starstruckness as well, which surprised me with um, this format. Um, and by starstruckness, I mean, maybe not starstruckness. Um, once I hit recording, I'll often be like, have a bit of a chat in like the green room beforehand and then we record and then we like turn off and then discuss a little bit afterwards. And often those periods that bookend the main recording is more brevity and more um, human. And as soon as that red dot starts ticking, 
And I don't know if it feels like people are consciously being watched and because well, I guess technically you are being observed, but in a <laughs> way. Um, I find also, that I'm very, um, well, maybe this is not true, but I tend to be like, I mumble a lot more if I like, I don't know. I feel like I'm more put together when I see a little red light flashing. Um, even if I'm saying things that might not should, should not be saying, but um, hmm. I've never heard you mumble, but I also so speak. Natural, but thank you. Now you'll see it when now you'll hear it whenever I. <laughs> what do I do? My, I mumble a little bit. I don't speak very clearly. And my mom, it drives my mum nuts, but my mum's deaf as a doornail, so. Oh my <laughs> she has poor, my whole family on that side has poor hearing. Um, and when she got together with her new partner, Jono, he's from South Africa, which has a strong accents. Um, and I remember before she was about to get married to him, she told me that she could only hear about 50% of what he ever says. So <laughs> I was like, huh? A legitimate question. Are you really sure you like this person? Because you're leaving a lot on the table, you know, like talk about like an inconsistent narrator. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one of those things which it's um, the other thing I, you, you do pick up on and the difference between the pros and the amateurs is a, there's a reason why they've all got proper microphones. Um, like I've got my little piece here. Um, but you do realize like when you're listening to, you know, like why doesn't mine sound like the daily? And you're like, well, maybe because we're not in a. Also soundproofing. Like soundproofing yeah. is so expensive, but. And then also like the reverb in the background, like you're able to like, extract it. It becomes more yeah. crisp there. There's so many, it's like, it's like, yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that podcasting and, and any of this kind of stuff, it's like, or YouTubing, there's so much that is required. There's actually like, like a, there's like a capital, like you need enough capital to yeah. even just there enough. It's like, Oh my gosh. Um, and people have no idea. And I, I have a lot of respect for anyone who does podcasting. Cause I think it's, and I am enjoying all of the conversations you're posting. Well, thanks. Um, Christina. That makes it's, sense. Oh, it's interesting. Um, yeah. Well, I think we've got an interesting, it's good that I don't have to create the content. Um, but yeah, no, I, when I think about YouTube, I often think of, like if you ever go back and watch the, like Justin Bieber's videos, which he, got the scarlet on like that is not going into the algorithm anymore that is getting shunted like it's just like like it's over those days are over but in some of it is obviously because there's so much technical like this is now a this is now a bbc studio um in some ways uh because the quality is good um but yeah you know you hear about people like mr beast dropping like 50k on a um 10 minute video and it's yeah we're not there yet but it's it's great to see that, that things are getting uh better and better and uh opportunity this remains a land of opportunity absolutely i think that mindset is slowly being lost uh, in american society but i'm glad that you still have it i have it yeah, we, we're, we're both gonna make it so Andrew, thank you so much for coming on um oh, thank you for having me. I'll talk to you.